I was uh, thinking this morning, for whatever reason, about some Christmas movies that, that really kind of stand out in my mind. And, and, and from that, I started thinking, you know, what is the overarching message that the majority of these movies communicate? And so for whatever reason, I started thinking about The Grinch Stole Christmas. And so you remember his, his whole plan and purpose to, to wreck Christmas for all the Who's in Whoville. And so he goes down there and he gathers up all the Christmas presents and he gathers back up all the lights and he does damage and he just lays everything waste. And so he goes up and he's trying to escape. And what does he hear? He hears singing from all the Who's in Whoville. And it's really teaching us this message that, that it's, Christmas is not about presents, it's not about all these things. Maybe it's about family or it's just about the Christmas spirit. You think about Christmas with the cranks, this husband and wife that were going to leave, they didn't want to be a part of the, the hubbub, the commerciality of Christmas. Instead, they're going to do the completely uncommercial thing and go on a cruise. And so as a part of this and this hustle and bustle, they ended up finding themselves, instead not doing that, but celebrating Christmas with their family. And it was a comedic tale of that. Or maybe Home Alone is the Christmas movie you think about. Poor little Kevin left alone at home, all the while torturing two grown men who really just wanted to check in on him. At least that's, that's how I see the story. Or maybe uh, you think of the Christmas story, and maybe what that communicates to you is that you really just need to be a better shot and know what's behind what you're shooting at. Beware, you'll shoot your eye out. So really, no matter where you come down on any of these Christmas stories, you recognize they're all teaching some message that's really encapsulated in sentimentality. It's, it's created to engender some type of feeling, some emotive response from you. It wants you to cry, it wants you to celebrate, it wants you to pull your wife, your family closer and say, I'm so glad we're together at Christmas and I'm so sorry for yelling at you when I was hanging those accursed lights. But what we see in Luke chapter 2 isn't some story steeped in sentimentality. In fact, it is a plumb line for all other thoughts about Christmas. This morning we're going to have a sermon in two parts. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And we're going to walk through, and then we're going to sing, and we're going to praise Jesus together. And then we're going to come back, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 20. Amen? Let's look at the first few verses. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. What we see Luke doing in the first couple of verses in chapter 2 is setting the scene. He's trying to cast this within the historical framework of those things that unfolded. And so he's giving us some background information that has somehow escaped on some of us, and he opens it up, and who does he describe first? He says Caesar Augustus. Well, this is Octavian. This is the great nephew of Julius Caesar who had arrived at power after he defeated Mark Anthony. And so we find him at the head of the Roman Empire. This man who squashed rebellions, who brought about peace by use of the sword who brought about peace, who squashed all rebellions, who was so heavy-handed in his exercise of war that everyone was terrified to speak against him. And so he brought about peace in a decidedly militant way for the Roman Empire. But this is what God's doing. Captivated within this brief discussion of setting, we see the hand of God moving to stir in the hearts of man. God was bringing about something 700 years in the waiting. And we missed that as we looked through this. Quirinius was the governor at this time in verse 3, and all had to be registered. Each went to his hometown. So Joseph and Mary not being without that. Verse 4 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem. Why? 
because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. So what we see in there is this amazing picture. We see the fulfillment of what the prophet Micah had uttered in Micah 5.2. Now Luke isn't interested with these details, but what we see in the gospel account of the gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, is Matthew focusing on this. Look at this, let me read it to you. Chapter 2 and verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There's this beautiful picture of the transcendent, incredibly overcoming, omnipotent power of God captivated within those couple of verses. God took a pagan emperor and he implanted upon his heart that they should, should give a, an edict, a commandment that a poll tax should be imposed. And so every couple had to find where they were going, their, their hometown, places where they might have owned property, and they had to go and be registered so that they might be able to pay an increase in tax to the government. Now this is good news for Rome. They got an accurate counting of who was there and who owed tax money. This would be as if the IRS sent you a deal and said, do you really make X number of dollars? Now most of us would be very tempted to say, no, I have took a considerable pay cut and I'll send you the tax that I think that you deserve. But what we see in Joseph and Mary going is that they were obedient to what? To the government powers over them, but they were also following through on the hand of God leading 700 years prior. The prophet Micah had prophesied and he'd said that from this small town would come the Messiah. And so what we see is the hand of God moving and stirring and he's moving within uh, the authorities of, the, of this pagan realm that's set up. Look what happens next. Mary, who is with child, was with him, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. This is an incredibly understated uh, comment. For any of you who have, who have gone through the birth process, to say the time came for her to give birth is, is incredibly underwhelming. And so what we see in this, we don't know how long they had been there. The picture in most of our minds is they traveled all night, they got there, and this this curmudgeon innkeeper said, no room for you, you know, something like that, uh, not in English, obviously, but probably a little bit angry. And so he's turning them away. Now, we don't see that in here. What we see is that they went there, they were there from some time, and while they were there, this understated phrase, the time came for her to give birth. Now, so far in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen God do some pretty amazing things. The angel of the Lord, Gabriel, showed up and he communicated to Zechariah and Elizabeth that the incredibly improbable, to them, the impossible was about to take place. They would have a child. And Zechariah's response was, guffaw. You know, he couldn't, couldn't believe it. He couldn't uh, believe that God would move in this way, would bring this child to be for such an elderly couple. So God moved in the improbable. He brought that thing to be. John the Baptist would come and he would prepare the way for Jesus. And then next we see God move in the impossible. The angel of the Lord Gabriel shows up to Mary and he tells her, Behold, you will bear a child and you'll call his name Jesus. And so we see God move from the improbable to the impossible. But in this, it's just a completely mundane recitation of fact. They were there and time came for them to have a child. Now look what happens next. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And we begin to think that something must be off. Now, if this is 
not the first time you've come across this, then this is not a violation of your expectation. But if you were there and hearing this for the very first time, and you've been told this one would come and he would be the king of kings, the lord of lords, upon his shoulders, his government would never cease, you're pretty flabbergasted. You're, you're surprised, you're, you're uh, befuddled, you don't understand exactly what's transpiring because there is no celebration, there is no grand reception. In fact, where we see them lay this child is in a feed trough. A feed trough. Perhaps there's some, some hay in there to, to, to settle the child on, to soften it. They take strips of cloth and they swallow him, they wrap his, his arms tight to his body and to keep him uh, for warmth and to keep him in there, his little little limbs from flailing around and they lay him in this trough it's not the reception that we thought it's not what we'd supposed if you and i were were given the prophecies that were given to zechariah and elizabeth and the prophecy given to mary and said now what do you think happens next we think palaces we think marble we think granite we think fanfare we think confetti Whatever way that we celebrate, we think they're going to be celebrating this way, but we don't see that taking place there. The text simply tells us that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no room for them. Now, there's no curmudgeon innkeeper that turned them away. What I think Luke is actually trying to get at is something that we have to look at Luke 22, verse 11. In Luke 22, verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples to go to secure a guest room where they might meet. And what he's setting up for, what he's preparing for, is the Last Suppers, for the Last Supper. Now, the interesting thing is that same word used there in chapter 2 for in is the exact same word that Jesus uses when he tells the disciples to go. And to secure a place for them to meet to hold the Last Supper. Even in his coming. His coming was not to be celebrated. Even in his coming. He's preparing our hearts to receive the purpose and plan that God had for Jesus. The divine come in the flesh. As we turn our hearts to worship and proclaim and call out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Think about the love that God had for you, that even in the coming of the Son, there was a focus on the crucifixion of the same. Verse 8 pulls us back into the text. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now it's interesting that when Jesus comes, we see him oftentimes spend his, the preponderance of his time with people that are kind of downtrodden, people that are not highly esteemed. And so in our day, it's not the doctors, lawyers, bankers. It is the guy picking up trash. It is the homeless guy beside the street. It is the people that, for whatever reason, society does not deem a high rank. Shepherds. What we see in this is shepherds have this tremendous visitation that comes to them. So they're out, and, and they're out at night, and, and so they're laying probably out under the open sky. The sheep are held up in the sheep pen. 
Verse 9, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Cast your mind there. It's dark, maybe the moon is out, but it's really just stars in the sky, and all of a sudden, the most immensely bright light you've ever experienced shines all around you. You're captivated. The text paints this picture. The light envelops them. Everything for them is light at that moment. It goes from darkness to, uh, to instant stark light. There's a, there's a decided contrast between what they knew before in the darkness to what they were about to know as they begin to walk in the light. So the angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for whom? For all people. You know, this is the third such angelic visitation that we've had so far in the Gospel of Luke. You'll remember the angel appears to Zechariah when he's in the midst of performing his priestly duties. And what happens? He's, he's disturbed. He's, he's afraid. He opens his eyes from praying and he sees the angel of the Lord and he's afraid. And the angel has the same response, do not be afraid. The angel appears to Mary and, and utters words. And the text tells us that she was greatly troubled because she's trying to figure out what exactly he was saying. So here for the third time we see an angel show up and humanity's response is one of fear, uncertainty. Not really certain what exactly is going on here. But the angel has this interesting response, so it's more than just don't be afraid. What does he say? He says, I bring you good news of great joy. This word there encapsulated in good news is I bring you the gospel. The angel so shows up and it's communicating this idea of this kernel of truth of the gospel, I bring you good news of great joy. And who's it for? The text tells us that it is for all people. Now this is a curious bit of information for these shepherds to receive. They've been going about this day just like it was any other day, going about their affairs, then all of a sudden they're enveloped in light and they hear this message from a medium, something that they're not used to doing. This isn't a normal occurrence for shepherds. Shepherds aren't, aren't uh, the type of people that you typically think of that an angel would show up and talk to, but this is what they do. They receive a direct communication from God through the intermediary of the angels. Fear not, for I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now look at verse 11. The whole thing hinges on this. This is why that they're able to have great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Where is that? Bethlehem. Now look who he describes. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. He tells them that they'll bring to him a Savior. Now it was quite common for Caesar to be referred to as a Savior for people. And so they had in their minds this concept of what a savior could do. A savior and this great military leader who would come in and would remedy things, who would rescue them, who would redeem them from some travesty. And he says, I bring to you good news of great joy that a savior, this idea that they would be saved from something is playing in their mind. But look how he describes it further. He says, who is Christ the Lord? Now the idea of Christos or Christ means the anointed one. So he's keying into these men's minds that the Messiah has come. That he's been born and that he's just a short distance from them. And they're told in the title of this Messiah that he would bring about the salvation for them and for all those who would hear about him. That's what he says. 
And look what happens next. We find that that mundane detail of this child being wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger is going to be key to the shepherds discovering him, defining him. Look at the next verse. And this will be a sign for you that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And so what we, what we initially thought was mundane, what we initially thought choir, it was that this great travesty that Jesus would be wrapped in kind of common cloth is this amazing thing that it would be a sign for these shepherds to show them where this child would be. And so as they go from, from stall to stall, as they go from room to room, they're shepherd, they're going in, okay, no baby, okay, baby, but that's a nightgown, okay, baby, swaddling cloths, this is him. And so it was a sign for them. It showed them which child was to be the correct child. It let them know that they were in the right location. Now they received this word from the angels. And look what transpires next. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. So what we get the picture of is that these shepherds had one angel and this light shined all around them. It enveloped them. But at the telling of where the child would be gathered, the majority of the army of heaven is gathered on this hillside outside Bethlehem. And they cry out with one voice, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's this amazing display of the love of God. It's just this amazing proclamation of what was about to transpire for humanity. This tremendous announcement that would forever alter everything. He had come. The Savior, Christ the Anointed, and what the angels purported to say was glory to God in the highest. God deserves to be glorified. He deserves to be worshipped on the basis of what he has done, on the basis of who he is. And look what he says next. And on earth, peace among those uh, with whom he is pleased. The favor of God rests on all those who identify with the person of Jesus. The favor of God rests on all those who are identified who by faith believe in and are united in faith with the person of Jesus. This is what's being communicated to them. Look what happens next. The angels go away back into the heaven and the shepherds say to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So the shepherds realize that these aren't just some rogue angels out trolling the night. I wonder who we can stir up. Like, I wonder who we can stir up and, and, and sell a message to. They recognize that this message has come from God and has been communicated to them by the angels. You know, at that point, hearing the greatest news imaginable, they had to make a decision. How would they respond? But what we see from the text is as they said to one another, they entered into this type of conversation where they are all bent on going to see what had been described to them. They are all bent on going to see what had been described to them. They would not be satisfied until they beheld the child, until they saw with their own eyes what was described to them. So they said, let us go over to Bethlehem. Look at verse 16. It says, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They saw the reality of what had been told them. They saw the reality of what had been told them. They were told by the angels that this thing would happen, that they would see him with their eyes, and in fact they did. Look verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. These guys get to become the first evangelists about Jesus. 
They've been told by the angel that this was good news of tidings of great joy for all peoples, that this child would be a savior, that he would be Christ, the anointed one. And so they're going out and they're able to tell everybody they were into the account of what had transpired. So they meet Mary and Joseph, Joseph, they meet whoever else is gathered there around them, and they're relaying this same story. They're relaying all the events that had transpired for them that night. And we see some responses break out. Look at this. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Upon hearing of Jesus and what he would be and what he was, it caused people to wonder. For some, it caused them to wonder and contemplate and say, is this really too good to be true or is this really just some nonsense these men concocted upon a hill? It caused them to wonder. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary continued to think over all those things the angel had told her individually, all those things that these men had reported to her. She could not in her mind comprehend all that Jesus would be and certainly could not comprehend at that moment all that he would suffer for humanity. But let's follow the shepherds, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. For the last several weeks, we've been journeying through the first couple of chapters in the Gospel of Luke. The story of the arriving light of Jesus coming in the flesh. So often we get lost in Christmas. We have a society, a culture that is, is preoccupied with the idea of consumerism, of every toy your kids see they need, and every toy they haven't seen they need to get in front of their little grubby fingers so they'll definitely have to have. And this is, this is kind of what we're competing against. But we recognize that when Christmas is ushered in, this idea of Christ come in the flesh, it's a decidedly different deal. The gospel is not calling us to review this so we'll be steeped in sentimentality, so it will move us and say, what a beautiful baby Jesus was. But even in his coming, he's calling us to behold Jesus and to respond. You see, there is no neutrality in beholding Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. There is no neutrality with the shepherds had a decision to make when they heard of Jesus, the decision to either go and to investigate, to go and to behold him, to go and to follow up, to believe on the basis of the testimony they received, or to disbelieve and continue to live their lives on the hillside. Recognize when the gospel is communicated to you, when you're told that there is a an all-powerful God who created you, who created you to know him, and who sent his son to die in your stead so that your sins might be forgiven, this message calls upon you to respond. There is no neutrality with God. God is holy, righteous, and just, and his justice demands to be satisfied. And so God, recognizing that you and I were incapable of satisfying his justice, incapable of being holy, incapable of being sinless, sent his son, who we celebrate at Christmas, to come and to be born in the most humble of circumstances. But he continues to still want to be born in, in each and every one of us. He calls to each of us, trying to awaken us to our sinfulness, calling us 
to be poor in spirit so that we might recognize our need for him. When he showed up to the shepherds, he showed up to men that did not esteem themselves to be of high regard, who did not reckon themselves to be named among the nobility of Bethlehem, but who recognized need. Do you recognize your need today? Do you recognize the need of those around you? I tell you, the greatest gift ever given was given the first Christmas. God wrapping himself in flesh and come as a child. And the greatest gift that we're able to tell on Christmas is that that child would grow up, that he would be sinless, and that as Hebrews 4 tells us, that he would be a high priest able to sympathize with our weakness because he is like us in all things yet without sin. And that he would allow himself to be put to death at the hands of his creation. Why? Not so the sentimentality of Christmas might reign in your hearts, but so that Jesus Christ might reign in your hearts, that you might have the forgiveness before God through the sacrifice of the Son. Would you join me in praying together?